0: Before we get started, a quick note. This podcast features explicit language and may not be suitable for younger listeners.
1: Well, I mean, in the beginning, it was just, uh, um, that was was the closest I ever felt to my parents. I remember um, my mother was sobbing when she saw me.
0: Bobby is that awkward kid you went to high school with that never quite fit in always on the fringe, probably a few pounds over or underweight, with that one deep, abiding passion that just didn't mesh with the rest of the school culture. In Bobby's case, it was video games, a pastime that consumed his allowance and whatever income he could scrounge together. Because for Bobby, getting that high score meant the difference between invisibility and notoriety. You see, he figured if he could just get his initials up there on that screen, people would finally see him as the special person that, deep down, he knew he was. And for a moment, in the fall of 1981, people finally did take notice of Bobby, although not for the reasons he'd hoped. One night in October, just a few days shy of Halloween, Bobby went missing from his home in a suburb of Portland, Oregon. When he was reunited with his parents the next day, filthy, unkempt, and barefoot, naturally, the first thing they wanted to know was...
1: What happened? and. At first, I I couldn't tell, I just couldn't tell him.
0: That's a recording of Bobby from January of 2015, when co-producer Todd Luoto and I first traveled to Portland, Oregon to hear his story. According to Bobby, back in 1981, a mysterious unmarked game cabinet showed up on the floor of his favorite local arcade, Coin Kingdom. There was no way that 14-year-old Bobby could ever know that this unassuming game would lead to his abduction a supposed conspiracy that spanned decades, and ultimately changed the course of his life, because when Bobby finally did tell his parents what happened, they didn't believe him.
1: That that that's when everything changed, because my parents, you know, were like, "No, what really happened?" and "Don't lie to the police and tell us again." And I think I told the story like seven or eight times, and I could tell that. No one believed it, and I started getting really bothered by that. After the police left, it was like, my parents were just distant and not saying much to me, and when I went to school, there was just whispers everywhere. All of a sudden, I was just a a total freak. My parents pulled me out of school for a while because I got beat up a few times, but my parents also pulled away. It just was this wedge that just got worse at the dinner table. There'd just be nothing to talk about. Because if we talked, it'd just be that subject.
0: But Bobby's experience in high school didn't silence him. In fact, it did quite the opposite, inspiring a lifelong quest to validate his story. As the host of a walking tour based around his experiences, Bobby's mission was to authenticate the gaming urban legend that became known as Polybius a legend that blurs the line between fact and fabrication, one that, instead of fading away, has only grown more potent with the passage of time. I'm John Frechette, and this is The Polybius Conspiracy, a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia.
2: Hi folks, thank you for coming out tonight. The story that I want to share with you today, it's not about the horrors coming from some dusty old tome or an old scroll or like the Necronomicon or something like that. It's about horrific things coming out of an arcade cabinet. Potent killer video game, Polybius. And it is a kind of local myth and a local legend.
0: That's Joe Streckert, a Portland historian, journalist, and tour guide performing before a live audience in the basement of Velo Cult, a Portland bicycle shop. Over 50 people came out on a weeknight to hear him tell the story of one of the city's most beloved urban legends. And there's a lot of them up here in the Northwest. Bigfoot, aliens, the Shanghai tunnels. We'll get to that one on the next episode. Even if you're not already familiar with the Polybius urban legend, it's something you may have noticed referenced on episodes of The Simpsons and The Goldbergs in the pages of Batman Incorporated number one, or in a recent Nine Inch Nails music video for their song Less Than. Best-selling author Ernest Cline used Polybius as a plot point in his latest novel, Armada.
3: The premise is that from 1977 on, Star Wars and Space Invaders and kind of everything that followed uh, was not an accident, that that movie was partially funded by the government to kind of help prepare everybody's hearts and minds for uh, an alien invasion. Uh, and that video games and the whole video game industry was kind of shaped and repurposed to train the people of Earth to control drones using their video game controls to fight off this alien invasion. In Armada, I took it a step further, like Polybius was just kind of the first of a series of games, and then I create a fictional sequel to Polybius called Phaeton.
0: But before it became a sort of pop culture Easter egg, it was just a whisper circulating on arcade floors and the internet. Ernest Klein.
3: I remember hearing it at an Aladdin's Castle uh, arcade all the way in central Ohio where I grew up. It was like one of those legends uh, that got passed around the arcade just for years, and I remember hearing different versions of it.
0: Joe Streckert.
2: I have no idea when I first became aware of Polybius, which I think is perfect. Ask people like, when did you first hear the story about the guy with a hook for a hand that, you know, pursued the couple in their car and when they got out, his hook is hanging from the car? Ask them when they first heard about, like, the boogeyman or whatever. You don't know. With those sort of myths and legends and stories that people pass around, it's just kind of out there in the air. In the early 2000s, uh, I just sort of became aware, like a lot of other people who were dwelling on the internet, that there was a killer video game from Portland, which I thought was cool because I'm from Portland.
0: And the story goes, in the fall of 1981, a mysterious video game showed up on the floor of several arcades in the vicinity of Portland, Oregon. According to Wikipedia, countless online forums that quote Wikipedia, and dozens of online articles that quote the forums quoting Wikipedia, Polybius proved to be incredibly addictive with local youth. But much like the kid that eats too much candy on Halloween only to get a stomach ache, playing Polybius seemed to go hand in hand with a number of side effects. From the benign, headaches, dizziness, nightmares, to the more severe depression, mind control, and suicide. There are even stories of mysterious men in black who would show up at odd hours at these arcades to check on the machine, collecting data from its guts and making note of high scores. Could it have been the product of some secret government mind control experiment? Here's Joe again.
2: First known reference to Polybius. It is from August 3rd, 1998, From a coinop.org article the game had a very limited release one or two backwater arcades in a suburb of portland by the way portland is not a backwater thank you very much Uh, the history of this game is cloudy the kids who played it stopped playing games entirely one of them became a big anti-video game crusader or something we've contacted one person who met him and he claims the machines disappeared after a month or so and no one heard about them again
0: the Coinop post was popularized after it received mention in an issue of GamePro Magazine, in which the veracity of the Plebeus legend was declared inconclusive. We reached out to the owner and administrator of Coinop.org, Kurt Kohler, asking him to shed light on the origin of the post, but he declined our request to be interviewed. In his tantalizing reply, he asserted the post was user generated and advised us to quote, Understand that you're not the only ones looking for information. The Polybius entry on coinop.org is very specific, and I can't really say more. Sorry I can't be of more help. What did he mean by that? Was this just a feeble attempt at deflection? Kurt did not respond to further emails. Joe Streckert.
2: So in July 2003, it shows up on the Snopes message boards. That's when you know you've arrived as an urban legend or a myth, if you show up on Snopes. And Snopes, when they investigated it, they declared that it was not a real game and they couldn't find any mentions of it. But you show up on Snopes, you've arrived, and other sites around the internet in the early 2000s start picking it up more and more and more after that.
0: And that's where Polybius first becomes this underground internet phenomenon, where you have people claiming to know someone who played the game. Emulations of gameplay start appearing online, along with doctored photos of the cabinet. This is how co-producer Todd Luoto first introduced the legend to me, back in 2010. At the time, he thought it might be the germ of an idea for a movie, but the more we looked into it, the more it looked like a hoax. And then we heard from a friend in Portland about this guy who had given frequent Polybius walking tours as a way of getting his story out. And that's how we first met Bobby. Fuck
1: it. I spent my whole life people not believing me. I'm to the point where I don't care anymore. Now people are talking about this, and what people are saying is just kind of like these light jokes and silly conspiracy theory stuff or urban legends, and it's just kind of fun culty myth stuff. But this ruined my life. Kingdom, it was one of the things to go and do. On the weekends, it was a spot to go check out, and anytime there was a new game, there was always gonna be a line. It was kind of cool because that's that's where I got to shine out a little bit, and I think people saw that I had something special that they didn't have. I was definitely the best player there. I would just always be very low-key about it.
0: Bobby claims that one day an all-black cabinet appeared on the floor of Coin Kingdom. This happened from time to time, developers sending out prototypes of new games without artwork. It caught Bobby's eye, and as he dropped his first quarter into the machine, he was captivated.
1: I started playing it, and it was a completely different game, and there was, at first, nothing intuitive about it. And I, uh, unlike most games, I did not get the knack of it quickly. I struggled. I felt like the way most other people struggled on average games.
0: Because this was no average game. According to Bobby's testimony and online reports, the control panel featured a dial, whereas other games at the time used joysticks. And although it was recognizable as a space shooter, the graphics were much more abstract, full of strange geometric shapes and patterns.
1: There was one point where it finally felt like I had found the rhythm of how to play the game. It clicked, it kind of occurred over a week. i have never done sports, but I imagine it's like someone learning how to surf or something, where you finally, it's not hard work anymore, and you, you hit a flow. The day that happened, I hadn't died at all, and I started just going into these deeper levels.
0: And the deeper Bobby got, the more addictive the gameplay became, until he was spending most of his days at Coin Kingdom, hunched over this strange new cabinet. Weeks passed, and one evening, Bobby found himself further than he'd ever gotten.
1: I played games where things speed up and you gotta go faster, but the way this was an assault was uh, very different, and uh, my eyes really started to hurt. It just felt like things were popping loose in my head, or coming alive, or it was just like popcorn slowly going off in my head, it was straining my circuit boards, and then at that time is when uh, the screen just went totally black, except for me in the center, and I started getting defeated, I started getting attacked, and you just had to shoot these things, but you couldn't see them.
0: And then Bobby died. At that point, Bobby says he wasn't feeling well. His head was throbbing, which is consistent with the alleged symptoms of Polybius. So he hopped on his bike and pedaled home, where he barely made it up the stairs to his bedroom. He felt like he was going to pass out with every step he took. A few hours later, he woke up with an intense thirst and wandered downstairs. And I
1: was still having this awareness of things around me and what Freud calls the uncanny, where I was in my house, but I was also in a totally foreign house. I was in a structure that I knew very well, but then there was this other part of me that just felt like this was a totally alien place. And as I was getting the glass of water, I felt something different that was just in the intuition to, to my side, and I turned, and that's that's when I saw them. It was uh, three people in the front yard, and they're just standing there in shadow. I just I didn't know what to think, and I didn't know why they were there. And they started walking towards me, and that's when I got really scared. They walked past the window, and then I heard them open the front door and I was just petrified with fear. And as I turned to look to the door, my head just wouldn't move. And at that moment, I tried to scream, I just went into a full panic. I tried to scream out to my parents, but my voice just wouldn't come out of me. Like I tried to drop the glass to make noise, that didn't work. I just heard footsteps coming towards me, and then they grabbed me. Their hands were just all over me, and one hand felt so weird and foreign. It wasn't a regular hand. It didn't have all its fingers, and that's, that's where I blacked out.
4: I don't know how to say it without being mean. Be mean, be mean, and then we can
0: try again if you don't like
4: how <laughs> um, I think some people choose to believe in fantasy over reality because it's easier to get along with fantasy than reality.
0: That's Catherine Despira, being interviewed by co-producer Todd Luoto. Cat grew up in the Portland area and was a teenager in the early 1980s when Polybius was alleged to have appeared in local arcades. Today, she's one of the most notable individuals in the retro gaming community, having written a number of articles on the scene, including a rather in-depth exposé that debunked the Polybius urban legend.
4: When I first started writing the story and I I, I put a quick <laughs> something up on Craigslist, which is something I normally would do looking for people who had seen it, I immediately closed it because I had so many people coming to me, oh, I played this game, oh, I have this game, oh, I have these roms, there's this guy at the coast that has his roms, but you can't see them. I just met so many people that uh, weren't real about it, and I knew that they weren't. And I felt kind of bad, I didn't want to tell them I, I don't believe this, because I, I kind of got the sense that they needed to believe it.
0: There's a kind of perverse humor in all of this, given where Polybius gets its name from a Greek historian of the Hellenistic period. Joe Streckert fills us in.
2: So Polybius, the historian, wrote a series of histories called The Histories. Great name for a series of histories. Also, uh, he was a cryptographer. And he actually had a few sort of, I think, forward-thinking rules about how he did things. For example, he wanted to corroborate information with interviews. Polybius, the guy, was very much into not just relying on hearsay or accepted stories. He wanted to actually track down people who had hopefully seen it themselves.
0: So the fact that a mythic arcade game takes its name from someone known for being a fact-checker is one of the surest signs the whole thing, and therefore Bobby's story is a hoax. Right?
3: I guess if you're asking me straight up do I believe Bobby, I, I do not believe Bobby. It's like the common conspiracy theory thing where there's enough gray area to let people wonder, but ultimately, if you're just looking at what's the most likely situation, it seems insane.
0: That's Dylan Reef. This is a guy who's such a regular at Ground Control, Portland's premier retrocade, that they might as well put him on the payroll. Whether he's playing competitive pinball or designing immersive events and escape rooms for film festivals, when it comes to games, Dylan is your guy. We tried to get a sense of Bobby from the people who knew him, and it was a game of Tempest that first brought Dylan into contact with Bobby.
3: High scores are obviously a badge of honor, and at one point Bobby held down every spot in the high score on Tempest, which is in this community it's like a real FU to everybody. It's kind of like an assertion of dominance. I know that sounds super nerdy, but like if you can fill out an entire entire high score list with your initials, like, you're, you're unfuckwithable, basically.
0: Until one day, you're not.
3: Ground Control every year picks a game uh, to do a tournament on. And this year was Tempest. Bobby obviously entered the tournament. It's his baby. So no one was surprised when he showed up. He did not fare very well. He was like the fourth or fifth high score. Uh, so he didn't even place in the tournament. And it's like, I don't know, it's depressing to see like a grown person get angry over something that's, at the end of the day, it's a game. And especially at Ground Control, which is such a community space, like it really is the type of place where you meet new friends. Uh, You know, he's not allowed to compete in any tournaments anymore. I think that's one of the reasons we don't see him as much.
0: Step outside of Ground Control and you'll find yourself in downtown Portland, the hub for many walking tours, where you might learn of the city's seedier past. There's plenty of murder, prostitution, even a ghost named Nina. These tours frequently combine the historical and the fantastic, and the tour guides are often just as eccentric as the subjects they exploit. They're also the perfect place for an outsider seeking a captive audience to tell his story to.
3: Bobby's a guy that likes to be the center of attention. If he can hold a court, he will do it. He likes his soapbox.
0: So guess who started a walking tour?
3: I mean, there's a huge market for kind of like spooky Portland and weird Portland, but he basically runs a walking tour very inconsistently, uh, and he takes people from location to location in places he believes are connected to the Polybius conspiracy. He claims that he was abducted as a kid. So, for what it's worth, (laughs) uh, if you want to learn from Bobby's perspective, uh, you can take these tours.
0: So naturally, after hearing of Bobby's reputation around town, we had a lot of questions for him. One of the things we wondered about was the way he had chosen to tell his story. A walking tour. Why a walking tour? I mean, it just seems so easy to label him as someone who decided to exploit a local legend for a quick buck.
1: It's a lousy way to make a living. So, like the argument that like, oh, you're doing this for, financial gain is a bogus argument. I could go get a job at the McDonald's and probably make more money per week. When I started to see posts about Polybius, you know, people had the uh, benefit of the anonymous factor of the internet and it was all smoke and mirrors and I wanted to do the exact opposite of that and do something where here are the straight-up facts, here's me, you can actually meet me in the flesh, you can shake my hand, I will take you to the actual locations. It's important to just get so so the fucking facts are straight for once. Versus right now, it's just a whole garbage pizza of fact and fiction and then it just makes the whole thing seem like it's not real and it's a joke.
0: One of the many interesting things about Bobby is how skeptical even he is of people who claim to have played Polybius. You'd think he'd be happy to invite as many people into his corner as possible, but no.
1: Here's the thing about Polybius. Of all the times that I've done this, and I've had thousands of people come through on the tour, no one themselves has ever actually played the game because everyone always talks about someone else they knew who played it. Or if someone does claim they've played the game and I talk to them, it was clear they're lying and they're actually just trying to test me.
0: I don't wanna I don't wanna discount your story, yeah. and I hope you don't feel that I'm doing that. Right. But right. you know, as somebody who is naturally skeptical of things, right, you know, your story is reminiscent of accounts of sleep paralysis or sleepwalking.
1: But, but people who have that, have that as a condition and things reoccur. I, I had a singular event, you know, that's been a popular explanation. You know, another one was just that kids do bizarre things for attention or other people thought like, oh, he just ran away and then got chicken because he got, you know, caught up in the middle of nowhere and then needed to cry out for help. You know, like a cat that got too far up in the tree I didn't pack anything. I didn't pack, like, any food. I didn't pack any clothes. I didn't even take my bike. It it would have made sense that if I was running away, I would have taken my bicycle.
0: And even if he had, could Bobby have ridden the 60-odd miles to the Tillamook State Forest, where he was discovered the next day? See, the troubling aspect of Bobby's story is that as far-fetched as it sounds, in the 30-plus years since he first began telling it, there's been no concrete evidence to contradict it. How does a 14-year-old get himself to the middle of nowhere without a driver's license or a car? The only plausible explanation is that Bobby had an accomplice who was of age, but no one's come forward. And it's a long time to keep a secret. So what exactly happened to Bobby that fateful night?
1: I came to and I was just dizzy. I couldn't tell if I was upside down. I kept opening my eyes, but it was just blackness everywhere. I tried to say something, but something was in my mouth. It was down my throat. I gagged on it. I I realized I I couldn't move, but this time it wasn't because my body had paralyzed itself. I was being held down by something. And then I started to hear a sound in front of me. I heard this thrashing sound. I I was just helpless there. And I thought this thing was going to kill me. And finally, my eyes, they adjusted just enough and I could barely make out this shape. And it came towards me and I was trying not to breathe. I was thinking maybe it wouldn't see me, but it came right up to me. And I remember just thinking it was like, it was something that was maybe gonna like, just bite my face off. And then it just said, shh. And it said, we're gonna get out of here. And it was a boy's voice, someone like my age, some other kid. And he just started tugging on all these things that were like vines, like old vines that were gnarled up around my body that were holding me down. And with a lot of effort, he was able to rip one arm free. It was like sandpaper, I was just getting cut all over. I finally got my legs free. And then he just said, run. We just ran down what I realized was a tunnel. I didn't even know what the space was wearing before, but there was a tiny light way in the distance, and we just kept running towards it, tripping and stumbling over things, and it seemed like things were after us. Outside, we climbed up out this hole. There's this blinding daylight. I was still just terrified something was going to just get us from behind and that's when the boy I was with, he turned around and he was just so mangled and just so cut up and just sweaty and dirty and just looked like he'd been starved and his eyes were just saucers and I thought he was terrified at something behind me and I was too scared to look. We both just ran and he started running up this steep, rocky hill thing, this small mound. And I just ran the other way. I just kept running and running. I never looked back.
0: So Bobby was safe, at least for the moment. As for the boy that helped him, he'd vanished. Had he been captured by the unseen thing that was chasing them from the tunnel? Or had he too escaped? The thought crossed Bobby's mind to go back and look for him but he couldn't make heads or tails of where he was in the forest. So the only option left for him was to try to make it back to civilization, alive.
1: And for a while I thought I was going in circles and finally I came up to a small stream. And that's where I finally stopped and was still. And all I heard was the trickling of the stream. There was a strange rock that looked like it had a face on it. So I just crossed over the thing and just kept running barefoot and my feet were bleeding. And then I finally made it to a hiking trail. And from there, I just found my way out to a highway.
0: Incredibly, the sight of a filthy, barefoot boy on the highway was not enough to stop the few motorists that were using the route that morning. And Bobby had to walk several miles to the closest gas station, where he called his parents collect from a payphone.
1: You know, I just remember uh, taking a bath and eating a meal and just finally starting to feel better and feel safe. And uh, I had a brief period of feeling better, because then just came all the doubt, and no one believed me. I'd realized this was just the beginning of a whole different nightmare.
0: For one, investigators could find no such tunnel in the forest. And though Bobby insisted they were looking in the wrong place, to this day, even he can't locate its whereabouts. And then there's the question of the boy the one person who could have corroborated the story of a 14-year-old runaway. Who was Bobby's savior? And why to this day is his identity still a mystery? There are only three possibilities. Either he never existed at all, or he escaped, and for some unknown reason decided not to come forward with his story, or he never made it out of the forest.
1: For years, I pounded my head into the wall thinking about that question. There was this feeling for a while that um, if I could find him, then I wouldn't be alone in this mess. Like, even if we couldn't crack the code on this, at least we wouldn't be alone, or I could ask him what his experience was like. You know, doing the tour is a way to exercise my demons on a daily basis. It's like singing a song that purges something, some sickness inside you. but. You know, it does allow itself also that if that kid had survived, this is something he might hear about, and if he ever wants to come out and meet me, I am in the open.
0: There were other things that didn't jibe with Bobby's story. For instance, this mysterious game that showed up on the floor at Coin Kingdom? Well, after Bobby escaped from the tunnel, it was just gone. Sure, over the years, people have claimed to remember seeing a black cabinet during that time frame, but how much is truth? Perhaps the most damning part of all this was that Willie King, the owner of Coin Kingdom, said he'd never seen such a game. So how does one even begin to explain that kind of a discrepancy?
1: Well, I can't, I can't speak for Willie. How can I speak for Willie? What, what am I going to have to say about it? It was there. I think he was covering himself and just tried to distance himself from everything from it. And that's as far as my thinking on it goes.
0: Why wasn't it there when you went back to the arcade?
1: I don't know. I don't know.
0: After Bobby started telling his story, rumors began to circulate about Willie and what he was doing with some of the kids at his arcade. Deeply unpleasant stuff. After that, parents wouldn't let their children go anywhere near Coin Kingdom. Where there were once lines out the door, Coin Kingdom began to carry the stigma of a former crime scene, real or not. It wasn't long until the business folded. Today, the only clues that Coin Kingdom once existed are a faded sign over a doorway and a few lonely arcade cabinets tucked into the corner of what is now a laundromat.
1: I mean, what's sad is like, I don't know who started those rumors. I don't know, I mean, it was clear the guy was wired a little bit differently, but I don't think anyone ever thought ill of him. But then when all this stuff cropped up, all of a sudden it seemed like he was mixed into it, our stories didn't match. And, you know, that was the main thing that just cut my story down to size. So that was frustrating, but I understood how he had to cover himself. The thing that was, you know, bizarre was that then he died within, like, a month.
0: Some say all the stress got to Willie, and he found solace in drink. His blood alcohol level was twice the legal limit. When first responders discovered him dead at the wheel, his Buick Sentry wrapped around a tree a few miles from the arcade.
1: You know, there were other tire tracks there that just uh, didn't add up. Like, I remember looking at it, and it was, just, it was all bullshit.
0: There is no way to verify any of Bobby's story. According to most secondhand accounts, it was a deadly case of drunk driving and nothing more. Do you feel any guilt over that, given that it was your story that sort of thrust him into the limelight?
1: Are you trying to say that some of his the blood is on my hands? Is that what you're saying? Right now, this feels, I thought this was going to be something different, and it does not feel different to me. Like, this feels like I'm not sure how you're going to shape this story, but, but this kind of thing doesn't give me much uh, faith in how you're going to be de- depicting me. Um, I, I'm used to this, but, this, but th- that kind of question, that's to me, that's where this is leading. I just want to know where you guys really fucking stand.
2: I, ultimately,
1: I guess you guys are
0: both victims, right? Yes. Who are the victims here? Is Bobby the victim of a crime that's gone unsolved for decades out of adult ignorance? Or is he the perpetrator of a hoax that certainly cost one man his reputation, if not his life? What of all the people who shelled out 20 bucks for his tour? Are they the victims of a scam that purports to tell the truth, when in reality, it's just more lies? Or is the real victim an unidentified boy whose remains are lost among the trees somewhere deep in the Tillamook State Forest? By any definition, a crime requires evidence. And over the years, as Bobby's maintained his story, that's always been the one thing he's lacked. Until now.
1: No, I was done with the tour, and I was outside the laundromat, and that's where people will take their photo with me. That's where people give me tips or tell me to keep fighting the good fight. I'm definitely a magnet for all kinds of conspiracy theorists. But one person waited till everyone was gone and and pulled out a newspaper clipping. And it was an old photograph of a bunch of kids in an arcade, and I realized it was Coin Kingdom. And one of the faces in there my finger just went right to it. That was, that was the boy who rescued me.
0: On the next episode of the Polybius Conspiracy.
2: All the color went out of Bobby's face. You you hear people say that, all the color went out of someone's face, Um, but it really did. It wasn't something you could fake. He he recognized Mark. I believe Bobby. I Bobby.
0: The Polybius Conspiracy is a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. The series is produced by Todd Luoto and myself, and executive produced by Julie Shapiro. Original artwork for each episode is by Jin Lem. Music for this episode was composed by Restricted, Rishikesh Hirwe, Chris Fitzpatrick, and Ananon. You can learn more about all of them and see bios for everyone we interviewed by visiting radiotopia.fm showcase. I'm John Frechette. The Mystery of Polybius continues next week.